When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News, and now it is time for the Jack Riccardi Show. All right, Christian, good afternoon, and hope everybody is thawing out or at least didn't have too much damage from this storm, and uh, welcome to our dreadful little show. we got a lot to talk about. We are going to keep an eye on this weather because, as you heard Christian say, there is still some icing potential uh, as we get into tonight, but hopefully we're getting out of this and coming out of it. Uh, tonight into tomorrow, getting back to normal. There was a whole uh, Jesse Waters on Fox News Channel last night did almost his whole show about this uh, idea that Kamala Harris uh, is not going to make it onto the 2024 ticket with Joe Biden because Democrats are panicking about her. And I'm laughing and I'm watching this because what are they learning about her that the rest of us didn't already know? I mean, she's she's a terrible political candidate. She's uh, not very bright. She is lazy in terms of prep and gathering facts and speaking from facts. She has uh, phoned it in, and 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 for much of her political career, if we're going to be honest, and I remember when when she you know burst on the scene in 2019, um, it was really interesting to read about how all along at every step of her political career, starting in California at the local level in Oakland and, and moving on up, it was always not, it was never about what she could do. It was always about who she was. It was about identity politics. And Kamala Harris checked boxes and she gave, uh, white liberals cover and they felt better about themselves by donating to her, promoting her, and, it, and she has promoted and failed and fallen and tripped her way up to being a heartbeat away from the presidency. And what's triggering this is the Democrats are suddenly realizing that she may be a drag on Joe Biden's reelection, and if he doesn't run, they don't want her running in his place. There was a radio interview with uh, Elizabeth Warren in Boston. She was on public radio, and... Um, they asked her about Biden running, and she's like, oh, yeah, I, 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 Joe's great. He's done a great job. I support him running for president. And what about Kamala Harris on the ticket? Well, she, she says, well, uh, whatever, you know, Joe needs to be comfortable with whoever it is. So the Democrats are worried. They're worried about running her as the number two person. They're even more worried about having to run her as the number one person. Usually vice presidents gain the confidence of their ticket as they serve. In her case, she's losing that confidence. But it's because we don't know the difference between diversity and identity politics. Now, let me explain what I mean by those terms. Diversity is simply looking at a field of people, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, the people who live on your street, and seeing that they come from different backgrounds, different races, different ethnicities. Diversity happens. Identity politics is picking and choosing people for jobs or candidacies 
based on how many boxes they check. And being able to say, so-and-so is the first ever. So-and-so is breaking the glass ceiling. Diversity can happen, but identity politics has to be engineered. Diversity can be natural. Identity politics is, if you'll pardon the expression, man-made. Human-made, person-made, I don't know. So... So my question is, and I've been thinking about this all day, is there a way to tell the difference between diversity and identity politics? And this isn't just for the Democrats. If you're a Republican, I'm asking you this too. Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, is going to announce on February 15th she's running for president. And today I read that the U.S. Senator from South Carolina, Tim Scott, who I like a lot, has formed a listening tour. He's going to places like, oh, I don't know, Iowa and New Hampshire, just for instance, with a listening tour called Faith in America. People want Tim Scott to run for president, and maybe Tim Scott wants to run for president. Now, I'm not trying to throw them under the bus, but you saw what just happened in the midterms with that guy George Santos up in New York. The Republicans fell for his jive, because they loved all the boxes that he checked. He, he's, a, he's a ridiculous human being. But he is currently, and much to their embarrassment, serving in the House of Representatives because of all the boxes he checked. And he, he wasn't content to check one or two. He wanted to check like 12 or 15 of them, except he had to make up a bunch of stuff to do that. Here's why this matters. We need the best people. If we're going to get out of $31 trillion in debt, if we're going to get out of fighting a war in China in two years, if we're going to get out of losing every institution in this country to wokeism and to ideological terrorists, and I've got a story here in a minute that you will love, then we're, we're going to need our best people. We're going to need extraordinary leadership. They're going to, when they write the history a hundred years from now, we, they better be writing about epic, incredible leadership that stepped forward. We recognized, we selected, we followed. This is not the time for checking boxes. So, Republicans do it. We know Democrats do it. How do you tell the difference between diversity and identity politics? Is Tim Scott a good candidate for president? Is he a good candidate for president because he has skills and talents and a great vision? Or is he a good candidate for president because the Republicans would really like to run a black guy? Nikki Haley. Is Nikki Haley a strong choice for the Republicans? Or is Nikki Haley a woman who deflects the idea that the Republican politics is too, you know, man-centric, mansplaining? And for that matter, and, and you know I'm right about this, because the media will judge everybody by the number of boxes they check, I'm asking, how do you tell the difference? Can you even tell the difference anymore? Do you even know anymore? 
You know, I've had people say to me numerous times, I'm not going to out any of them, and never on the air or, you know, in a public way, but just kind of on the QT and discussing politics. I've had a number of people say to me, you've heard this, so don't, don't act shocked when I say this, there'll probably never be another white male president. I, and I don't know what to say to that. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't have a prediction. I'm just, but I know why they're saying it. And this is why they're saying it. This discussion is why they're saying that. Because they know, they recognize, whether they like it or not, and they sound like they don't, that we have given ourselves over to this, this notion that there is virtue in firsts and box checking. And the truth is, of course, that in any other area of life, if it wasn't politics, if it was your health, if it was managing your money, you would want the best person and you would insist on the best person and you would never tolerate somebody saying, yeah, but we have to break a glass ceiling. You'd be like, no, <laughs> let somebody else do that. 210-599-5555. All right, we're going to start with that. I want to get your calls on that. Jim Garrity, who writes for National Review, tweeted this out, and I thought it was an interesting question. How could Georgia be too racist to host the 2021 Major League Baseball All-Star Game, but not too racist to host the 2024 Democratic National Convention, which it looks like they're going to do in Atlanta? Yeah, what? What is that all about? And it was interesting. He got a bunch of answers, and the people that agreed with him were laughing, and yeah, and then the people who disagreed with him were like, well, oh, 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 Major League Baseball does not dictate to the Democratic Party uh, uh, where they hold their convention, which is a very, very um, slippery way of dodging the question. Major League Baseball pulled the All-Star game because they were told by Democrats that Georgia had become a Jim Crow state with its election laws. Major League Baseball didn't do that on its own. Major League Baseball responded to heavy-duty pressure. And now, all of a sudden, that same party is going to hold its big party there? Its big, its big quadrennial gathering there? I don't care. I mean, what the hell do I care where they have it? But it's just, it's funny, and it's telling. It goes to the question I asked at the start of the show. Speaking of elections, Harris County, as you know, is our biggest county. Harris County would be the 25th biggest state in the country if it was a state. It has nine members of the U.S. House of Representatives. It has six million people. And its elections are so bad that Governor Greg Abbott has said on Twitter, we will need new laws and we might need to redo the election for Harris County. The issue in Harris County was that at over 120 voting centers, they did not have enough ballot paper. And it wasn't that an unexpectedly high number of people showed up. They were prepared for the numbers they got, or they I should say they got the numbers they expected to get, but they didn't have the paper. There is not a paper shortage. They did not have the paper on hand at 120 precincts or voting centers, I guess they call them now. And the question is going to be, 
was there a pattern or did that happen randomly? Either way, it's unacceptable. People walked away, didn't vote. We don't know how many. But if we don't know how many people didn't vote, and we do know that there were people who waited and then didn't vote, the only thing we're going to have to go on is, is there a pattern? Did this seem to happen in places that favor Republican turnout, or was it randomly distributed? Either way, it's incompetence. There should be punishment. There should be new laws. But if it turns out there's a pattern, meaning it 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 disfavored one political party, then you and I are not going to believe that was random or coincidental. We're going to assume that was done on purpose. And what do you do about that? And it's funny because I remember when people used to joke about, like, you know, there was a, there was a joke about dead people voting in Chicago or what have you. There were jokes about LBJ and Kennedy winning close elections, and did they really win? And then all of a sudden in 2020, all of a sudden, it was like you said the F word if you said election fraud, you know, the other F word, right? All of a sudden it was heretical, it was obscene. How do, people were covering children's ears. Don't talk that way. Questioning the outcome of an election is not only obscene, but for politicians, it's suicidal. And you see how dangerous that is? Do you see how dangerous it is if we can't question them? I'm not saying, and none of us want this, we don't, we don't want every loser of every election to start screaming voter fraud. But by the, do we agree on that? Okay. But by the same token, if you can't say it, if you can't question it, then you can steal it. Our only hope of preventing him from being stolen is the danger of being caught stealing them. It's the same with any other crime. But we can't talk about it. What do you do if it turns out that Harris County purposely withheld paper from voting centers where they thought there would be more Republican turnout. By the way, where is the Republican Party in Harris County? Where is the Republican Party in general? How were they not ready for the shenanigans of 2022, which were basically a replay of the shenanigans of 2020? You know, this is like a bank that's never heard of bank robberies, the Republican Party. I, I know people get excited when Trump talks about uh, what he wanted Pence to do and this and that, but the real battle, Pen, the, the way Trump lost that election was before November, not in January. The real battle is election laws in who runs elections and being prepared to challenge specific irregularities, which means you have to find the irregularities. Republicans can't count on media finding it and reporting it. They can't count on Democrats coughing up a confession to it. If you're the Republican Party in in, in a county or in a state, you have to be prepared. You have to have worst-case scenario. I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of you are Republicans. Explain to me why your party is never ready for this and caught flat-footed every time. So, uh... Talking about diversity and identity politics, I know this is a hard question, and it's uncomfortable, but I I feel like somebody needs to bring it up, so I thought I'd bring it up. We'll see where we go with it. Listen to this. Um, 
the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum kicked out a dozen Catholic high school students and their chaperones on a January 20th visit because they were wearing caps with pro-life messages. Uh, students from Our Lady of the Rosary School, Greenville, South Carolina, had traveled to Washington for the annual National March for Life. Remember, we talked about that. They were wearing blue beanies with the words Rosary Pro-Life. Okay, Name of the school, the words pro-life. The uh, lawyers representing the families say that museum staff mocked the students and told them the museum was a neutral zone where political or religious messages were not allowed. One of the mothers of the students said the group was approached by a security guard who told them to either take off their beanies or leave the premises. Her daughter explained to the guard they were wearing the hats to identify and find one another in the crowd. Pro-life. Kicked out of the Smithsonian. You know, you may have given up on watching Hollywood or pro sports because you figure, well, they've been taken over. They, they don't, they don't, they're not there for me anymore. They're not speaking to me anymore. I don't, uh, I don't share their value. Okay. All right. I'm not sure it's a good idea to keep yielding ground, but maybe you've yielded some ground. And I, I can't fault you for that. We all have to pick our our battles. Are we really going to give them the Smithsonian? Have we already? It sounds like we've already given them the Smithsonian. I mean, there's all kinds of stories about the distorting of history and the way history is being depicted, this new Hispanic History Museum. But a neutral zone, what, that, that is a completely made-up idea. Are you going to tell me that no one has ever walked through the National Air and Space Museum with a shirt on that, I don't know, said ACLU or um, Biden-Harris or I'm pro-choice or whatever? Really? Who decided that there was an immediate danger to a group of school children wearing pro-life beanies. Everyone else was in danger, was threatened by that. Their experience was besmirched by that. And so I, I understand you hear something like this, your inclination is to shrug your shoulders and go, well, sign of the times. It, it, isn't there a point where you have to put your foot down? Who gave these people the Smithsonian? Again, I, I I get it. You may think, well, we've already lost the battle for Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NBA. Okay. This is the People's Museum. You're paying for it. You never set foot there. Interesting. And it's like the Covington thing never happened. Remember Covington Catholic a few years ago? And what's interesting is I, I've only seen this story on Fox News. And I'm wondering if other news organizations are afraid to cover it because, if you remember, Nicholas Sandman, the Covington kid, wound up suing them for uh, defamation. Other news organizations. It's been quite a week. Uh, you can join the show right now, 210-599-5555. So um, we're talking about diversity versus identity politics. Can you tell the difference? 
Can you explain the difference? Are political candidacies today based not on the qualification of the candidate, but on which boxes they check and how they provide the appearance of diversity? We don't like to think of ourselves this way. We like to say other people do this. The other party does this. Other people care about this stuff. This stuff's not important to me. I want to believe that about myself. But I have to be honest. I look and I think it's, I think the line has been so blurred that I think it's getting hard to see. And it also means that when somebody, and we've talked about this with affirmative action, right? So in the workplace, qualified person who happens to be black, who happens to be a woman, who happens to be a member of some other uh, group, but they're qualified, Behind their back, people look and they say, well, we know why that person got promoted. We know why she got the the gig over him. And are we doing that with our politics now? Is that the basis for political candidacies? Because we know that's why, look, it's not even debatable. That's why Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris, somebody that insulted and uh, ripped him in the debates. Somebody with whom he had no connection, no comfort level, and still doesn't have one. And she's proven to be a disaster. And the Democrats are wringing their hands if the rumors are to be believed. What do we do with her? Well, you got her because of the way we're doing politics these days. And there's going to be a lot more of her, or her type. People that are not up to the task. Peter Principal people, people that shouldn't be where they are. But they gave somebody cover. 210-599-5555. Now, I thought this was interesting. It's another study of uh, masks. It's a study of studies. And um, it says that um, viral epidemics or pandemics, including but not limited to COVID-19, and whether or not physical interventions interrupt or reduce the spread of these viruses, they looked at the existing research, the existing studies. They crunched the numbers. It's a group called it's a it's a very respected uh, group called the Cochrane Library, and they they don't conduct studies. They aggregate databases. And their conclusion was that the masks don't work. Even the N95 masks don't work because in the case of the N95s, they're better if you use them properly, but most of the time they're not. And um, people, they found, for example, that people over time become more lackadaisical about masks. So remember when the cloth masks started oh, you need to wash it every day. You might need to change it several times a day. Eventually, people were pulling on. You saw this, right? These grubby masks that were kind of nasty to even look at. It was like wearing dirty underwear on your face. These were clearly masks that weren't being washed. You saw when you walked through a parking lot, all the masks used, crumpled masks scattered on the dashboards of cars. Have a far cry from, oh, we're sterilizing them several times a day. N95, if you've ever worn one, you know that it 
It has to be fitted to you. And if it's not, then it's not any, it just feels like more of a mask, but it's not any better protection than the others. What we did with the masks is what we do with so many things now. We created a new religion, right? The thing about religion, don't get offended, is that you have to take some of it on faith. We can't prove all of it. There aren't studies. There aren't databases. Some of it's on faith. And people adhere to the religion of their choice. But if you ask them to prove it, they'll tell you, well, some of it I have to, I just have to believe. I just have to believe. The government did that with masks. It was like a religion, right? There were rituals and sacrifices and obedience was praised and disobedience was scourged. And people ate it up. It turns out we, we're not done with religion. We just wanted a new one. It turns out we're not, we're not a, a too sophisticated 21st century people. Oh, religion. We're not a, no. People, people ate it up. It's not the only one. I'd say there's a religion around climate change, too. Um, as with religion, the more you questioned it, the more rabid the defenders and the believers became. And as with religion, it split families. It split friends. Remember talking about disinvitations to Thanksgiving dinner? What has the power to do that? What has the power to keep people that used to like one another and love one another apart? Well, religion's always been one of them. This new religion did it. But as it turns out, those masks were not helping. 210 599 55. So we've got a lot on the table here. We're going to talk about and get your votes in on the JR poll. And Chris is on KTSA. Chris, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jack and the crew out there, and especially to your engineers. They're great to have. Uh, we were talking politics, is why I called in on. Just remember, the politics, identity politics, EDI, and all that is all part of your religion that you believe, however you believe it now that we're bringing that in, is the fact that we have a Republican who lied his way into office, and the left is upset over it when they have people like AOC and others who literally were hired to be congressmen, congresspeople, and they lied their way into office, and they still are lying their way in office. And I just, and yeah, you're right on masks. Too. Masks don't work. And Chris, now what, how do you tell the license. difference, since you bring up identity politics, how, how is one to tell the difference between diversity and identity politics? It's what you believe in it says your religion. So there is no difference, <laughs> it's just what you believe. It's what you believe. How do you define what is it? What is is? And that's what it goes. It's your belief system. That's the way people are okay. wanting to. But let's say, Chris. Let's say, Chris. Let's let's just say, for the sake of argument, 
I don't know your race, but let's say that you support a candidate uh, for office. You like this person. They're the opposite race from you. Uh, a different race okay. from you, I should say. Um, I could say to you, you're just doing that because you want to look broad-minded. And you would say, no, I, this person's really a great person. They've got great ideas, great policies. How are we supposed to settle that? Hey, I was, uh, how do we settle it? My brain just went a total fart, but back when we had a black conservative running for office, people go, you're only voting for him because he's black. No, I'm voting for him, like Ben Carson or whatever, because I believe in the way he's thinking. I like the way he is thinking as opposed to candidate ABC or the candidate left-right. I can understand why Barack Obama got elected the first time because he was black and people wanted to do that. It's the second time that I totally went, huh? Mm. You know? And so there is no way to tell the difference. You're saying there's, you're saying the answer to the question is there's, there's no way to tell the difference. There really is, in my point of view, in my mind, no way to tell the difference between identity politics and anything else, because it's okay. the way you define okay. your identity. Unfortunately, because the world is so screwed up right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, I know that. I don't need you to tell. I don't need you to okay. tell me that. But th- thank you, Chris. Thank you for the call. East. All right, uh, two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Is there a difference when there's diversity in a meritocracy? When there's diversity in an organization that promotes on merit, that has a fixed grading system or a fixed points system, and you see diversity, you see different people of different races, different ethnicities, different genders rise. Um, we know it. We know you can have diversity without identity politics. Is identity politics a shortcut? Is it like saying, well, I don't want to wait and see if we get diversity. I just want to make it happen right now. Like, I want to, I want the appearance of it right now. I don't want to see how things turn out. I don't want it to sort out. I need to know. I need to be able to say about myself, about my vote, about my political party identity. I need to be able to say, well, look at what we've done. Glass ceiling shattered. So I'm asking questions today, and, and I think I do every day that, that, are maybe hard to answer, but you can be honest. You can say what you think. You're, you're, it's okay to do that here. I, what, I guess we would call that a safe space. <laughs> I hate that expression, but all right. After the uh, beating death of that young man in Memphis, we saw two things, right? We saw honest people and we saw dishonest people. We saw honest people looking for honest answers. What happened here? And then we saw people, many of them in the media, many of them in the race industry, as I call it, saying that, well, of course, uh, racism was to blame. You had a um, majority African-American city, a majority African-American police force, um, uh, uh, African-American police chief, all of the officers involved African-American, the victim, African-American, and it's racism. And I asked the question the other day, 
if Tyree Nichols had been white, okay, and five black officers had beaten him to death, would they tell us the answer to that was racism? And the answer I got in my email was, that would never happen. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not saying it did happen. I'm saying if it happened, would that be your explanation? Would you would you have rationalized the beating of a white victim by black cops as racism? And I, my answer is I don't think there's any way it would have been explained that way. I don't think they would have said that. I think we would have heard some other rationale. And I don't think we're being honest. I don't think we're I don't think the people that are that are offering up racism are trying to help. They're just doing what they always do. They're they're selling their product. If you're a snake oil salesman, you roll into town, you sell snake oil. You don't look at the town and go, they don't seem to need any snake oil here. You set up your cart and you sell it. And that's what they're doing. And I'm I'm more and more captivated by finding out about this big policy change that was made in the Memphis PD and 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 probably a lot of departments around the country uh along about 2018 2019 they began dramatically loosening the hiring requirements for officer trainees what you needed before versus what you need now is like night and day um the requirements to be considered at the Memphis Police Department were dramatically lowered. And at least two of the five officers were hired under those lower standards. So if we've decided that we need to lower standards, can we be surprised when we get lower Outcomes. All right, you're one of the biggest football fans I know. I got to ask you, what is your uh, reaction to the Tom Brady announcement? It's about time. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say it was grossly overdue. No, not I mean, grossly. I think this year showed some decay. I think in the last three, and I get that he won the Super Bowl a couple years ago. Um, I think Tampa Bay was really loaded on defense that year. So, I mean, he could he play two more years? I, I guess he could. But like you just said, I, this is not the same guy we were watching 10 years ago. And probably not five years ago. So, um, yep, on, onward. I think onward it was the right, yeah, it was the right decision. Um, yeah, he should get some credit, by the way, I think, for making it much more cleanly than, for example, Aaron Rodgers is. As much as I like Aaron Rodgers as a football player, I, I don't like the way he's handling his situation at right, all. Right. Yeah. He's doing a tremendous amount of damage to other people's careers, to his franchise, to that city. Um, you know, you just, you need to make a clean break. You need to make it soon after the season ends. That's what Brady's done here. And I think another thing I like is that, and I don't think that what he did last year as far as announcing in more of a press conference format, uh, I don't fault him for making that announcement then, even though we came back. Because he probably did feel like, okay, maybe it's time to go. Well, today, it's just a tweet. There's no pomp and circumstance, just Brady, uh, here I am, now I'm gone, thanks for the memories. I think that's appropriate. And he kind of alluded to that as well. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, I was thinking about his career today, and, and to put this in perspective, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Patriots fan by birth. I, the only, the only NFL jersey I have is a Brady jersey. But, um, I'm not even sure he is the greatest of all time, as they sometimes say. And the reason I point that out is because when I look at the level that the elite quarterbacks right now are playing at, and if they continue to play at that level, mm-hmm. I think it'll be like comparing a Model T to a, you know, 2022 Corvette. Well, we've already seen it. You know, as the NFL went into the, the, the free agency salary cap era and we keep seeing defenses pulled away from the game, Brady's not going to be the only guy to play past 40 at a high yeah. level is what I'm suspect. Yeah. So yeah, I think you're right about I that. I think what you're saying is if you looked up 12 years from now and you still see a relatively young Joe Burrow with five Super Bowls, you're going to be surprised? No. no. I won't either. No. It's going to be a hard comparison to make. Yep. Anyway, 550 and 107.1 KTSA, Jack Riccardi. All right, so we, we're we asking hard questions today. I don't know if it's the weather. Maybe it's the weather. I don't know. I'm asking hard questions today. Maybe I've got some ice on me. I don't know. Maybe I'm frozen over emotionally on the inside. I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your take on these kids that were at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum from a Catholic school on a field trip wearing their beanies and told they had to leave, thrown out of the museum. Children thrown out of a museum. That's a good look for America. That, that really is. Um, I, I guess I just want to know when, when is enough enough? Because I know that our reactions to a lot of things that we see is to shrug our shoulders, shake our head, and say, well, I'm glad I don't watch the NFL anymore, or I'm glad I don't go to movies anymore, or I'm glad I don't have Netflix in my house or whatever it is. But, you know, at some point, you cannot let something as essentially American as the Smithsonian be declared by some pointy-headed bureaucrat a neutral zone, which it really isn't, because a neutral zone would mean you could wear anything. Pro-life, pro-choice, pro-dog, pro-cat. Not a neutral zone if you're making people leave. For their hat. (laughs) I'm not laughing because I think it's trite or cute. I'm laughing because it's sort of sort of unbelievable isn't it i say this all the time when we were kids and we were in school and we were learning about the soviet union and how uh, you know evil and diabolical an enemy it was we would hear about things they did to people and and ways in which they deprived human beings of liberty and dignity and we would think wow that's why we have to defeat them or that's why we can't ever lose to them or that's why we can't ever be like them and we have gone beyond them we've gone beyond them and not by force and not with not with them having anything to do with it as it turns out we got we got the soviet way of life without the soviets 2105995555 so i don't want to make your eyes glaze over but there was this big uh report from a group called the columbia journalism review when i was a journalism student this was a really revered body okay And the Columbia Journalism Review um, undertook to figure out what went wrong with the reporting of Russiagate. And um, 
The report is entitled Trumped Up, the Press versus the President. And the conclusion of the report, in a nutshell, is that um, the people reporting on the Steele dossier and the allegations of Trump colluding with Russia operated in bad faith. The report says no narrative did more to shape Trump's relations with the press than Russiagate. Um, The story resulted in Pulitzer Prizes as well as embarrassing retractions and damaged careers. I don't know about that. Um, The New York Times destroyed its credibility, says the report. Um, I won't go through all of it. It's lengthy and verbose. I'm capable of being that without their help. Uh, But what they basically are admitting is they cherry-picked things that made Trump look bad, and they ignored the things that made the Steele dossier look bad. Bob Woodward, the famous, you know, Washington Post, Woodward and Bernstein guy, Bob Woodward, who was, when I was in journalism school in the 80s, was the iconic figure. He was, you know, the reporter every young reporter wanted to be has said that he tried to warn, I don't know if he's telling the truth or just Monday morning quarterbacking it, he says he tried to warn other journalists that the Steele dossier was garbage and that they were stepping in it with the Steele dossier. So where is this all going? Why are you even telling us this, Jack? Why do we need to know this? Well, because you need to know that people in journalism are starting to question whether or not any of this matters like is it even important to correct a fact you got wrong is it important to revisit the way you covered a story is it important to acknowledge that you may be operating in a bubble that you don't perhaps know your audience it's a man named emilio garcia ruiz he's the editor-in-chief of the san francisco chronicle he said recently objectivity has got to go Objectivity in journalism is old school, old fashioned. He calls it reactionary. Journalists are activists because journalism is about morality, says the dean of a major journalism school. Journalists are activists because journalism is about morality. So see if you're if you're if you're in into morality, anything goes. You can be pro Biden because that's the moral way to be. You can be anti Trump because that's the moral position. Remember we played that blogger a while back who said he would do anything. He would tell any lie to make Trump look bad because Trump was so dangerous he had to be stopped. And so now we have leaders of major news organizations buying into this and saying, yeah, we're, we're not going to try anymore because we have a higher calling than to tell the truth. We need to change events. And I'm going to say the word again. It sounds like a religion, doesn't it? Higher calling, morality, 
the rise above the, the fray. So objectivity is itself not the goal, but the problem. I We used to think media bias or media prejudice was the problem. Now objectivity is the problem. What do you think about this? Do you, do you figure it's this is the way it's going to be? You've given up. You're like, Jack, we already know this. Do you think that somebody will see an opening here or an opportunity to zig where everybody else is zagging? I keep waiting for that. I, I, I know that that probably reflects my age, but I'm old enough to remember when you could listen to NPR and get pretty good news. Or CNN. Get a pretty good view of the world. You were a very smart person. You were very well-rounded, well-informed. If you spent some time with NPR or CNN, or if your station, if your uh, city, rather, had an all-news radio station, tune that in for 20 or 30 minutes a day. And that's that's all changed now. You don't hear people saying that now. You wouldn't hear me saying that now. Do you remember that? Do you remember that CNN? Do you remember that NPR? So, I guess I'm getting old because I, I um, vaguely remember getting a journalism degree, and the word objectivity was the sort of the ultimate objective or the ultimate accolade. And to hear people in journalism school saying, you know, I think we need to stop worrying about being objective. Objectivity has got to go. Sounds like they've already gotten rid of it, and now they're just explaining it or sugarcoating it or, you know, (laughs) putting the press release out. So if you give up on something... Instead of saying we failed, you could say, oh, we, we meant to give that up. We, we, we decided we didn't need that anymore. Uh, here's someone else, a professor of journalism at Stanford. Journalism needs to free itself from this notion of objectivity to develop a sense of social justice. You know, I guess if journalists are deciding what's right and wrong and deciding what we need to know, and don't need to know, and deciding what we should do and should not do, then all we're going to need are journalists. We won't need anybody else. Are you a journalist? If you're not, we're not going to need you anymore. All we will need are journalists. I I, I knew my profession was kind of full of itself. I, I, I knew that a long time ago. But this is delusional. I mean... This is a group of people talking to one another in a way that no one else is talking about. No one thinks, outside of journalism, the journalists should be the definers of morality. No one is. I don't think anyone believes we need a new high church of journalism. People have stopped watching, they've stopped listening, they've stopped reading. So what do you do? Well, logic would say you try to figure out what has PO'd people and fix it, or at least say you're fixing it, right? Like, logic would at least suggest you pretend, hey, we're going to try to be more balanced. We're going to try to pull this thing back to the center. That's what this guy at CNN 
is saying. I don't know if he's doing it or not, but he's he's saying the right things, right? He's saying we've got to pull CNN back to the center. These people are saying no. We are going to be the moral leaders and social justice warriors. We're not going to report on people like that. We're going to be that. Objectivity is synonymous with prejudice, says a former executive editor at the Associated Press. Um, I got a journalism degree. I didn't stay in journalism. I'll be very honest. Uh, there were two reasons I didn't stay in journalism. One was, as soon as I started working with older journalists, I saw how lowly paid they were, how overworked they were. And number two, being a young guy, I wanted to do something a little more exciting and sexy, and so I, I became a music disc jockey. That, that's full disclosure. But I got a journalism degree. I, I worked in it. I did it. Covered stories, covered news conferences, wrote for print, wrote for radio. <clears throat> I, I remember thinking that I was part of something important. It felt like this is one of the pillars of American, the American way, you know, free press, free speech, make the comfortable uncomfortable. But boy, to hear these people, um, they are presiding over the, this is like, this is like a, a Jonestown mass suicide of the news business. If people start hearing you guys talk about this, like, well, we're not even trying to be objective. I mean, you think your, you think your uh, audience numbers and your readership numbers are in decline now. This is literally the worst reaction to the dilemma that you're in. This is the worst reaction to Russiagate. This is the worst reaction to Trump you could possibly make. And I'm just, I, I bring this up. I realize, I realize I'm talking about, I'm talking shop. This is not your business. I understand that. I had to say, I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I've been pondering whether or not to bring it up on the air. And I decided I'd bring it up just because, um, although you're not, per se, a journalist, you have some other job, you work in some other field, right? Um, you've probably heard the expression, everyone's a journalist now. And what that usually refers to is that everyone has a smartphone with a camera, Everyone has the ability to upload. Everyone has the ability to disseminate information. Uh, most people are on some kind of social media platform in which they can reach as many, if not more people than journalists used to ever dream of reaching, right? So your, your little post on Facebook or something today is seen by more people than some reporters ever reached their entire careers. So everyone's a journalist. And just at that moment that everyone's a journalist, journalism's got to go. Hmm. Now, remember when Trump was attacking the journalists? Remember when they were, they were all so shocked and horrified? He was, he was berating Jim Acosta, and he was mocking and belittling White House press corps reporters, either for the questions they asked or for interrupting him when he answered or what have you. Remember that? And remember how that was terrible and wrong because we need... These people, and these are truth-tellers and all that. How fast we went from that to, oh, we're not 
we're not objective. We're not telling the truth. We're leading people where they need to go. Uh, we've been talking about this on and off for uh, the last few days. You have the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and a four-star Air Force general both warning that um, we could be headed to war with China over Taiwan as soon as 2025, and not picking that date out of the air, but both Congressman Mike McCall and General Mike Minahan citing events and circumstances right now in that grim expectation, both of them saying they hope it's not true, both of them saying it's not inevitable that it will happen, but warning that it could happen. And that's where we bring in our next guest, joining us on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Miles Yu has been a professor of military history and modern China at the U.S. Naval Academy, and he was the principal China policy advisor to then-Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in the Trump administration. Uh, Miles, you welcome and, and, and good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Hello, San Antonio. So, um, you know, I, I, I've said this before. People hear war with China. It's coming. It's inevitable. We've been hearing it so long, you almost don't hear it anymore. It's interesting to hear two very serious people s- sort of, you know, circle a date on the calendar. Why are they sounding the way they are? And do you agree with their uh, their concern about that? Well, first of all, I'm a military historian by training. All I know is this: uh, uh, clearly, there's a there's a, uh, a menacing uh, danger right there. But our adversary has never worked on the schedule that we think, you know, well. Uh, uh, the thing that we know. So uh, uh, 2025, 2024, 2027, yes, those are all possibilities. However, I think, you know, a sound national security policy would be we should be prepared as if military confrontation would happen tomorrow. There are also other factors that could we could use to delay or even deter the military actions launched by China. But that's something that, that we can control. So to give an artificial line timeline, even if we're right, I mean, they mm-hmm. can change it. Over. Mm-hmm. So that's basically is a is a little bit of exercise of futility. However, mm-hmm. it, we have a line better than we don't have one. The whole point of the of the uh, Congressman McCall and the General uh, Minihan, they're all right that there is uh, a urgent uh, national security threat there. We cannot ignore the seriousness of that. Mm-hmm. So. If I'm hearing you correctly, and you're saying we should be prepared right now, not on some putative future date, does that mean we're not prepared right now? And why are we not prepared right now? What have we built this military for, if not for this confrontation? We've been hearing about it literally all our lives. Well, I think, you know, the military preparedness is something that's, a, that's obviously has some kind of security uh, issue involved here, so I'm not going to speculate on that. All I'm saying is... America is a country of enormous resources, and we have endured challenges uh, from the beginning of the republic. Uh, uh, so, and we all triumphed and and uh, persevered. So, I think right now the worst enemy is actually us, that we don't take an imminent threat like China very seriously. As long as we have a national uh, uh, preparedness, national awareness, 
I think it would do it. And how much we can do it, and we can do it best. Is it, is it enough? I don't think so. At any moment, that uh, we can we can always improve our mm-hmm. uh, capabilities and uh, our 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 preparedness. So, for somebody hearing this conversation right now and wondering, uh, okay, uh, why is it so important for the United States to be able to prevent uh, or repel a Chinese invasion of Taiwan? I mean, why should I care about this sitting in traffic in San Antonio, Texas? What would you tell them? Okay, so um, unlike any other challenges we face in the world today, for example, you take Russia. Now, Russia is cranky and very aggressive in Ukraine, and it's very regional. And Russia really, really wants to get uh, the world's attention. So Russia is fighting for global relevance. China, however, is different. When they challenge the United States, they don't challenge a particular aspect of the United States. They challenge the fundamental system of the United States. They challenge the way we handle things, we operate. When uh, at the beginning of the Biden administration, you know, the, uh, our Secretary of State and our National Security Advisor faced their counterpart in Anchorage, Alaska. And then they faced a barrage of Chinese, uh, Chinese uh, tirades. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but their tirade was not just about how bad we are, what we should be doing better. Their tirade is against the, the fundamental system of the American democracy. They're saying their so, so-called socialist democracy is better than the American system. And they challenge us from the fundamental, not just from one particular aspect of this. For example, when they hollow out Americans' manufacturing industry, it's not just for gain economic upper hand. It is to is aimed to to, to, mm-hmm. to have the beginning of the destruction of America as not mm-hmm. only a superpower, but also as a leading democracy in the world. I get what you're saying about the way they see us. What? Where does Taiwan fit into that? Because, and I don't say this disrespectfully, I have, I have Taiwanese-American friends, I know how proud they are, but obviously... In the, in the grand scheme of things, why would defending Taiwan be so important to what you just said? Okay, great. So there are two aspects of this. You can look at it from, from two, two, uh, in, in two ways. One, uh, in the old days, the Chinese Communist Party would like to frame this Taiwan issue from the point of view, purely from the point of view sovereignty. Now, Taiwan is a part of China. China owns mm-hmm. it. Right. Now, the narrative has completely changed. The world is beginning to realize the, the crust of this whole issue over Taiwan is really about communism versus freedom and, and democracy. Taiwan is the, Asia's leading democracy, vibrant. 23 million Taiwanese live in freedom and uh, uh, breathe uh, uh, the fresh air of democracy. China's really uh, 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 sort of a, uh, added urgency to take Taiwan has a lot to do with the increasingly democratic Taiwan that could serve as a powerful inspiration for the people in China. If mm-hmm. every Chinese act like the Taiwanese do, and the Chinese government's uh, monopoly dictatorship is doomed. That's mm-hmm. why it's serious. So to defend Taiwan is actually to defend democracy. That's very broad. Uh, sounds like cliche, but it's very real. Secondly, uh, China is not just aiming at Taiwan. Taiwan is just the beginning of the long chain of aggression China uh, is in, embarking on. Taiwan has, is one of them. And then China has territorial dispute with Japan, mm-hmm. has, with, with Vietnam, 
with India, with many mm. countries in Southeast Asia. So this is just the beginning of the chain of regression. So I used to, I normally uh, used to, to, to use the analogy of uh, Adolf Hitler's Nazi expansion. It started with, with Austria, and then with Sudetenland, and then with Czechoslovakia, and with Poland. It's mm-hmm. chain of regression that, ca- that has to start at some point. Taiwan mm-hmm. is, the, is the Sudetenland of China. So if we lose Taiwan, China is going to move on to the next target. And then we're going to have a chain reaction of a bad result and a catastrophe. So that's why Taiwan's defense is so crucial and so vital. I, I find this fascinating, and I appreciate your time on this, uh, Miles. You let me ask you one more question. Um, the Chinese have done something that I don't think the Germans ever dreamed of. Uh, they have managed to insinuate themselves into a lot of American institutions, everything from land ownership to higher education. Um, are, is that, in your view, does that distort the debate? Does that um, prevent us from being ready, not only militarily ready, but as a people psychologically uh, ready? Because they have played this as a long game. They are not doing this with the rapidity of Hitler in the 1930s. They've been playing this out over, over decades. Have they, have they crossed that line to where it distorts the, the, the debate? Yeah, well, the China challenge actually is a very, very unique in a sense that unlike the Soviet Union, even like the Nazis, let's, let's take, uh, let's take the Soviet Union. When we fought the Soviet Union, the Soviet system is self-contained. It has its own block. It's right. completely separate from the free market system. Right. So it's much easier to deal with the Soviet Union. We foolishly embraced China into the, uh, the international free trade system. China enjoys a full membership of free market system. So Chinese government uses the Marxist-Leninist control mechanism to exploit international system and to enrich itself. So when we talk about the China challenge, China threat, we're not talking about 5,000, 6,000 miles away. We're talking about right next door, even within our living room. Because China's surveillance system, China's espionage, China's influence peddling is right here uh, in America, right next to us. So, for example, um, uh, when you say the Chinese government buying stuff in America, now, first of all, before I even go on that, I have to make a very uh, major distinction, that is, there is a Chinese government and there's a Chinese people. Chinese people, they are all anti-Chinese government, but Chinese government views Chinese people as the ultimate enemy. So uh, when you have a state actor acting as the instrument of infiltration, mm-hmm. and then we've got a problem. So you can just uh, use this kind of free market system to pose as a, 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 a free uh, 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 person to buy, say, 5,000 acres of land. That person may be, may well be the agent of the Chinese government. So they may use that right. for its own purposes. Chinese government does it all the time. They, right. they, 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 they use the agent to pose as an agent from Hong Kong, merchant right. from Hong Kong, and they spend $20 million to buy this uh, Soviet Union uh, era uh, 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 aircraft carrier shale. And then they told to China, and the Chinese Navy took it over and not became the prototype for today's yep. Chinese uh, military's first aircraft carrier, which is pretty operational right now. So this is basically the situation that we, we have to make a distinction between Chinese government and Chinese people. And when we find Chinese government 
uh, action, we must stop it from the beginning. Well said. Uh, amen to that. Miles, you, we appreciate the time. Thank you for coming on today. I hope we can call on you in the future. No problem. Thank you. This show today and every show becomes a full episode podcast. You can find it at KTSA.com on the on-demand menu or anywhere you like to listen to podcasts. Just look for the Jack Riccardi Show. Remember when Top Gun Maverick came out last year? It was the, you know, long, 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 long after the fact. I guess you'd say what? Sequel or whatever to Top Gun. And it was a huge hit. And there was a phenomenon, uh, a lot of young people, uh, I shouldn't say young people, a lot of people, but especially young people, my daughter, for example, was one of them, before they wanted to see Top Gun Maverick, they wanted to make sure they'd seen Top Gun, the 1986 movie. Um, and that made sense, right? Like, you, if you watch Star Wars, you want to see them in order and stuff like that. Okay, so anyway, a lot of people went back and they pulled it up on Prime or Netflix or whatever and they watched Top Gun. And... A friend of mine was saying that his son, who was about 20, of course, had never seen the original Top Gun, watched it and said to his dad, in so many words, I'm paraphrasing, I've never seen a movie like this. And his dad said, yeah, it's great, right? He goes, no, I've never, I've never seen a movie. Remember, this is a 20-year-old talking. Never seen a movie that was so, um, like, not embarrassed to be patriotic was I think the way he said it. It's just unabashed. I'm, now I'm going to use a different word. He was basically saying it was unabashedly patriotic. It was unabashedly pro-American. The Americans are the good guys. And Top Gun Maverick was that way. And here's my point, and I do have one. The reason I asked Michael Cunningham yesterday and Miles you today, why should we care about Taiwan, is because we're a country that has lost its confidence. We're not the top gun country right now. We're not confident enough to enforce our own border. We're not confident enough to say to criminal organizations, you cannot run our border. If we're not comfortable and confident about ourselves, people in Taiwan should be worried. I mean, if we're the ones they're depending on, look what we're not doing for ourselves. That's why I'm asking the question. I'm not an isolationist, although I respect that, I, I respect why people are isolationist. I, I totally get the argument that if you're not taking care of things at home, you have no business taking care of things anywhere else. I understand that. I don't share it, but I understand it. But you, you realize we used to be a country that was so sure of itself that we gave confidence to the rest of the world. And now we're not. And I'm not putting this on Biden. This started way before him. He's a symptom of it. He's not the cause of it. But when a young person looks at Top Gun, the 1986 movie, I think it was 86, and says, I, I, I've never seen a movie like this, I, I believe him or her because they haven't. They've never seen an America like that. 
And I think that's our dilemma here with whether we're talking about Taiwan, Ukraine, um, terrorism. Remember that? We used, used to talk about that quite a bit. Haven't heard anything about that in a long time. Like, that just went away. Are they on sabbatical or something? I don't think so. Right? All right, Christian, we were talking. I was just talking to Don Cooper about I've been hearing these uh, sort of dull roars all throughout the uh, day. And what's happening is trees are basically exploding. Exploding They're so trees. covered in ice that, that as the day goes on, either with the accumulation or the thawing, there's, I know this is happening all over town. I'm, I'm looking at some of the stories, some of the pictures. It's happening all over my neighborhood. Trees are just letting go. Hmm. And huge pieces, half a tree, a third of a tree, coming down all at once. Just uh, when I was outside for just during your newscast, I went outside, and in just like two minutes, I heard two of them. Really? Uh, different places. So be, people need to be very careful uh, driving, walking, being under a tree. This is not a day to be under. Not that anybody's spending a lot of time outside, but right. you do not want to be under any trees right now. Very, well, very important. Well, you're talking about the, 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 the branches falling down. I spoke with yes. CPS Energy earlier today, and if you do come across a downed power line, they're really stressing that people, A, don't go near it, Right. B, don't even drive across it. Right. And that's yeah. happening. So, and we may have, you know, things seem kind of stable now, but later tonight we may get this again. And so this, we're not quite there yet, I think. Yeah, I don't really know what tomorrow's going to be like because the temperature only goes up a little bit in the morning. And mm-hmm. um, even though I, the school districts are all saying we're back tomorrow, um, I, uh-huh. I would I would definitely take a wait and see attitude on that. That yeah, that might be the. I think San Antonio has announced that they'll be on. I don't have the complete rundown, but you know, again, you know, it's been cold for a couple of days, and you know, weather forecasts are usually pretty spot on. But there's some wiggle room there, and yes. when you're talking yeah. slick roads, and this isn't Des Moines, for example, where they're just going to be on this and they're going to handle this. You know, it's a little bit trickier in the southern states where you don't have all that infrastructure. So we'll see. I, I would also be a little i was thinking about this when i was outside and looking at these trees i was thinking you know i'd be worried about kids walking yeah under these trees tomorrow yeah yeah so i didn't think I about hope the that. school districts are not just thinking about the roads but about mm-hmm. you know the conditions with these trees anyway it's we don't usually talk about trees this much but uh <laughs> they're exploding I've been hearing these so noises hey. all day and i'm like what am i hearing <laughs> right. and that's that's what it is trees yeah. the trees are are uh, giving up the ghost. Jack here. Later in this hour, we'll have the results on our poll question about the power outages. And I hope you're doing okay where you are. I hope you didn't lose power or you got it back if you, uh, if you did. Um, and we can talk about that. 210 599 I started to tell the story about Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick and how when young people who were getting ready to watch or had watched the new movie last year, went back to the original, which predates them, which perhaps they had never seen before. More than once, people made the point that it seemed uh, like no other movie they had seen. And it's because it was made at a time when the country had confidence. We were confident that we were right. We were confident that our adversaries were wrong. We were free. They were not. You could thrive here. You could not thrive there. Um, this was the place to be. There was no sense that you could possibly make your life better by moving to the Soviet Union. 
And um, at some point between Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick, as a country, we have lost that confidence. We are clearly not confident enough today to stand up for each other, like those kids at the Smithsonian. We are not confident enough to assert ourselves on our own border. Even the smallest countries enforce their borders. We are not, therefore, a reliable partner to anybody. I don't care what we're sending to Ukraine or promising Taiwan. We're not, we're not good for it, if we're going to be honest. And I've been thinking about why that is, and I'd like to get your thoughts on that, 210-599-5555. And here's what I've come up with so far, and this is a work in progress, so I'm, I'm, I'm penciling this. I don't, I don't say this is my final total answer. But I remember in the 80s, although there was a lot of patriotism and American confidence and even swagger, The elites really had it in for Ronald Reagan. They really thought he was a buffoon, a clown, a doofus, a cowboy, you know, wrong-headed, out of his league, from another era guy. They have started to give him more credit. There are now books and curricula that, that are beginning to give Reagan a sort of grudging statesman status kind of thing, but but it's been a long time coming. And, of course, he didn't live to see it. But I think what started in the 80s was the realization that if you, if you believed um, that America was the shining city on a hill, then you were with him because that's what he was saying. And they couldn't handle that. He couldn't be right. He couldn't be the leader that presided over that. He couldn't be the one that had articulated that because he was a, he was a doofus. He was a, he was a hick. He was a Hollywood B actor. Made movies with monkeys. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think what started the unraveling was, well, this can't be right because it was Reagan. And of course it really wasn't in the sense that Reagan didn't invent any of what he stood for, he just stood for it at a time when people weren't. But I think what's happened is our confidence has eroded because the people that would get credit for it, not only people but institutions like the military, um, Judeo-Christian tradition those are things that the the elites will not give credit to they will not acknowledge and so we have to be oh we're just another country we're not extraordinary we were never great said andy cuomo because if you start buying in you're in league with people they can't they can't be in league with. I can't sit with them. I can't stand with them. I can't be with them. They can't be right. And I think that's part of what's happened. By the way, I thought it was very interesting that Top Gun Maverick was a huge hit, and it packed theaters with people of all ages, and it brought people to movie theaters who hadn't been to see a new movie in a movie theater in in years. 
and people loved it. And you would think in a in a in an industry like Hollywood, which let's face it, and I'm not I'm not trying to be mean, but let's face it, Hollywood, if they find a if they find a concept that works, they run it into the ground, right? If they find a character, an, an actor, a plot line, a joke, whatever that works, I mean, they just they run it and run it and run it and run it and run it. Why haven't there been like ten or twelve Top Gun Mavericks? They can't do it. They can't. They can't acknowledge that that's the kind of movie people would fill movie theaters to see, would come back to movie theaters to see. They can't do it. And it was it was the same thing with. Ronald Reagan and his leadership. And so now we're a country that um, has trained itself to, and I'm not talking about like humility, like you should be humble. Humility is a, is a good thing, but you shouldn't be falsely humble. You shouldn't uh, deprecate true greatness. You shouldn't deprecate accomplishment. And that's what we do. We, we run ourselves down. I heard Miles Yu, when we talked to him last hour about China, say we are our own worst enemy. We really are. We really are. Our actual enemies count on and factor in the way that Americans run down their own country, their own history, their racism, their institutions. They, they factor in. They are pricing in to their plans the way we have turned on each other. Don't you think? I mean, isn't that pretty obvious? Wouldn't you, if you were them, wouldn't you say, well, hey, this is going to make it a lot easier, or this is a good time, because look at them. Look at the Americans. They're not, they're not the Americans of the 1980s. You know, I think what I'm saying is that we are starting to pretend things are normal that we know are not normal. I saw an interesting, kind of a weird little story. Um, the headline was, where have all the chairs gone? And I had to read that, right? That's intriguing. Where where have all the chairs gone? And this was in the San Francisco Standard. And it was about a Starbucks just off Union Square in San Francisco, very busy area. The coffee shop no longer has any chairs or tables. It's a huge space, but it has no chairs. It is obviously designed, the article says, for grab and go. You're supposed to just get what you want and leave with it. And they asked Starbucks corporate what's going on there. And why are other restaurants also, other Starbucks restaurants also doing this? And the company said, well, these are pickup only locations. They're designed to be that way. That's our new model. Why is that the new model? Do you know why? Do you know why there's no chairs? Because if you have chairs, people come in and stay. And I don't mean people with triple macchiatos or whatever. The problem with chairs and tables is what they call, and this is the term now you have to use, the unhoused population. Starbucks doesn't want to say it, but in so many words, they're saying they don't want the homeless hanging out in their stores. And I can understand that they don't want that. But why do we have that? Why have 
Why are businesses that are about hospitality having to pretend they don't want to do hospital? Oh, no, we don't want to have chairs and tables. <laughs> this is what I mean. We're pretending that the abnormal, the dysfunctional, is just the new normal. Oh, this is just the way we do it now. This is just the way we do it now. Chairs are so last century last decade chairs are so pre-covid and there's no plan to bring chairs and tables back to these locations several of them in downtown that no longer have them they also said when they were asked by this newspaper that it makes the starbucks employees feel safer now i'm not making i'm not gonna no no i'm not gonna make a barista joke here like you would probably think i would but I look around, and this is all I see. We keep pretending that the things we have to do because we've lost control of things we used to totally have control of, these things are fine. This is the new way of doing things. Hey, it's just the new way to have coffee. Okay, you can say that. That can be your, your company line. I'm not believing it. I'm not buying it. It's like when we heard that that a lot of chain stores, Walgreens and CVS and Target, they're closing a lot of locations in cities, major cities. And people said, I wonder if it's because of the rampant shoplifting and the smash and grabs. And the stores said, no, we're just consolidating. But they were closing stores they had just opened in some cases or had just built a year or two or three ago. So we know they have strategies. We know they don't go willy-nilly. We know when they build something, it's a, there's a plan, there's a study, there's feasibility they've projected. So they're pretending, oh, no, we wanted to close all those stores. But we know that's not really true. They're being forced to by the lack of control, the loss of norms. And then there was, I forget which chain it was, one of the big drugstore chains. I don't want to guess which one it was, but it was one of the national chains. The CEO said they're considering putting everything behind uh, locked display cabinets, you know, in locked glass cabinets. You know how they, certain things like high-end razor blades or high-end cosmetics, you have to ask a store clerk to come unlock it and get one out for it. Well, they're, they're thinking about putting everything in that way. So you would just walk up and down, I guess, museum exhibits of the stuff you used to just pluck and buy and take home. Does anybody think that's progress? Like, oh, I'd love to shop that way. That would be much nicer. I would I would much prefer going to Walgreens and having to ask for help for every single thing I wanted, every product I needed. And think about some of the things you buy at a Walgreens or a CVS that are kind of personal. Like, you know, it's bad enough I gotta buy this thing because of my age or my health or my whatever. But now you gotta go find, uh, you know, Brian at the counter with his little key to unlock for you. Yeah. So nobody thinks that's progress. Nobody's like, oh, I, I welcome that or I look forward to that. But this is what we're doing. That's what we're doing. And you'd like to see people like, these corporations be angry about it. Like, damn it to hell, we can't, we can't do business like this. We can't have a coffee shop without chairs and tables. We can't have a store without product on the shelves. 
pretty soon they'll just be pictures of the product. You know, they won't even be actual product. I, you'll 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 have to say, I want one of those, uh, the thirty-two size, and they'll go get it in the back. Really? And if you think brick and mortar retail is in trouble now, I don't know about you, but I'd have zero reason to go to a store, a store, if that's the way they're going to operate. I can do that online. So it's the difference between standing up and saying, we're better than this, this is not who we are, this is not how we do things, who's, who's responsible for letting this happen, calling them on the carpet, making city governments stand and deliver rather than posture about the Paris Climate Accord or some stupid thing. Versus saying, you know, this is just the way we do. This is our new way of doing things. This is our model. This is our business plan. We we don't want chairs. Chair schmears. I'm in a quicksand and I'm starting to sing. I need someone to help me, but I don't know which way to turn. I know I don't have much of a choice. I'll go out of my mind. Into the night. We're going to do the math on the JR poll coming up. We don't do new math. We do old math. I think everybody voted. Um, you know what story I'm really tired of? And I, I have to admit, we have talked about it less than probably every other show on KTSA and probably every other show is the Alec Baldwin story. I, I'm just, I'm tired of it. I, and I'm not, I'm not making light of the death of, of a young woman and, and all of that. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but just in terms of it being a topic of, discussion you know it's weird to me that hollywood doesn't think you need a gun or i need a gun or should have guns but they need guns and we don't need guns for the real lives that we lead but when they're making a movie when they're pretending to be cowboys they need real guns they can't do it with replicas toys, fakes, because obviously this young lady would still be alive if they had put a replica or a fake in Alec Baldwin's hands, right? So they need a real gun. He he needed a real gun in some Fakakta movie that you and I probably wouldn't even ever see. But people in Hollywood, people like Alec Baldwin, don't think that you and I in our real lives need a gun at all. That's, That's jacked up. I may say so as somebody named Jack. 210-599-5555. This is another example, I guess, of pretending that the new normal is normal or we're okay with this. This is pretty funny, actually, and it's it's better if you see it, but I'm going to play it for you anyway. Um, There were these vegan activists who were uh, filming themselves uh, they were going to do like a Tiananmen Square deal where they stood up to a, a truck. This was a truck with livestock in it pulling into a processing plant. And this guy is, is filming himself and he's, he's bragging about how we're going to, we're going to stop this truck. We're going to, we're going to get in the way. We're vegan. We're activists. And you know, vegans are a little low energy with their activism, but nonetheless, he's very excited. And this is how it goes down. Listen to this. 
Standing here in front of uh, Fearman Slaughterhouse, where 10,000 lives are taken daily, 10,000 innocent lives slaughtered here for no more than the taste buds of humankind of humans. Here we have the truck approaching, where approximately 300 animals are stacked into this truck. We're going to stop this truck so we can bear witness. got run over. Lunatic. What to stop. These drivers have no respect for life, no respect for human life, no respect for animal life. Psychopath. <laughs> what happens was he goes and he tries to throw himself in front of the truck and then he disappears from view. As you heard the, the, the truck, the guy leans into his horn and keeps on going. And the activist disappears from view and his, his cohorts you know, Kelly's heroes, they, all of a sudden they're, they're, they're afraid he's under the truck or he's under the wheels and he's going to be like a stain in the road. And he disappears from view because the truck is quite long. And after the truck has passed through the viewfinder and on into the gates, he's okay. He jumped out of the way. See, that's not how the Tiananmen Square guy did it. Just saying. But uh, everything about this video is wrong. The 10,000 lives a day, he means animals chickens right imagine if you tried to to carry out this same protest outside an abortion provider and you railed about how many lives were being taken every day and you you would be right i mean real lives human lives not chickens and cows you can't even pray silently outside a clinic in in the uk you certainly couldn't do what they're doing at any abortion clinic in this country and then the part about he's a psychopath because he didn't stop the truck. Now, I'm putting myself in the shoes of the truck driver. This man is working for a living. He drives this truck. He is not a combatant in the war on meat. Okay? He probably has a license. He probably has driven other loads. He probably drives other loads. And he is not about what's in the back of the truck. He's doing his job. By the way, these yahoos that are trying to stop his truck depend on almost every single thing in their lives, including the vegan foods they eat, to be delivered by truck drivers. So while they want to stop this truck, they would not want all the other trucks that bring them all the other things they want and need to be stopped, right? So, so some guy's doing his job, and these people that don't have a job are trying to get in his way. I wouldn't stop either. Who the hell knows what will happen? You don't know what they're going to do. You watch the news, you see what happens to innocent people. People that drive past a protest aren't even part of it. Absolutely not. I don't know if they tell the drivers to keep going, but if I was a driver, I'd keep going. Oh, I almost got run over. <laughs> lunatic. going to stop. Wait a minute, wait a minute. No Who's a lunatic? Who's a lunatic? Um, the person driving the truck or the person getting in front of a moving truck? Hmm. Let me think. May I have a lifeline? <laughs> what a lunatic. Well, how is this even, I mean, seriously, and I'm not, I'm not, 
I know I make vegan jokes, but you know, be a vegan. It's fine. It's a, it's a, it's a choice you make about how you want to live and how you want to eat. I can respect that. But you have to respect other people's choices too. Okay. The meat you're not eating, someone else is going to eat it. So don't get in front of the truck. Don't interfere with people doing their jobs. Don't be, don't be crazy. And, you know, one other thing, I, I, I love animals too. We have to start valuing human life. I could take more seriously the invocations of animal life and the need to protect endangered species. And, you know, if we find a, uh, a spotted, you know, mustachioed turtle, we rewrote a highway. I, I, I get all that. I get it. But I guess I would take it more seriously if we, if we valued human life, if we weren't so cavalier about ending human life. And, and by the way, not only babies, but, you know, we're, as a society, we're starting to move toward euthanasia and assisted suicide. And where are those protests? If they would even be allowed, I guess, right? 210-599-5555. But yeah, you're not gonna, um, not gonna stop the, you're not going to stop the truck with your um, vegan optimism. Anyway, that, that, was a, that was a bad plan, I'm just saying. Um, we mentioned this earlier, if you haven't heard the news, uh, NFL quarterback Tom Brady has announced he's retiring uh, from the NFL. He is uh, calling it a career. Uh, in a, a statement he tweeted out, he referenced the fact that um, when he announced his retirement last year and then changed his mind, uh, that didn't go over so well. So he sort of humbly and in a very low-key way said, okay, you know, I'm just going to say it. Uh, I've made my decision. Thank you. Thanked a lot of people. Um, I think he did the right thing. Um, I'm kind of curious to know what he's going to do next. I don't want to take away from his career and his stats, seven Super Bowl wins, five Super Bowl MVPs, uh, multiple-time NFL MVP, uh, so many records that may or may not stand over time. But I'm kind of curious to see what he will do next. He has an offer. I don't remember the, the dollar amount, but he has an offer. His agent, I should say, has had an offer for some time from Fox Sports that whenever Tom Brady is ready, Fox wants to put him in the booth as their number one color commentator, probably alongside Kevin Burkhardt, who's now their number one play-by-play guy. So that's sort of sitting out there waiting for him it's it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars it's a long-term deal and i guess the thinking is that he's obviously the biggest star in football and he's um he could be like the next tony romo the thing that made tony romo such a great color commentator is that he had been a quarterback and he had been one recently so when you hear tony romo uh you know sort of analyzing or breaking down plays it's a guy that's been in the league with some of the people uh, and coaches that he is now describing. Brady's even fresher than Romo. Brady was in the league five minutes ago. I just don't know if Brady is that guy. Uh, and I, I mean, you'd never want to underestimate Tom Brady. People have done that. Um, I say this as a fan, but I, I really, I don't really know. I mean, I wouldn't have thought Romo could do it. 
And I now get that probably any any and every guy like Romo and Brady is, is going to get this kind of a gig because it's clearly what the fans want. There's nothing better than a, a color commentator that can tell you, okay, here's what's going to happen next. People love that. Um, but I don't know if I really believe that he is that guy or or that he will even do this. I was talking to somebody today about the fact that um you know, during the NFL season, that's kind of a grind. And I don't know if Brady is interested in that. If he's interested in stepping from one grind to another grind, we'll see. Be interesting to watch what he does next. We'll we'll soon know. Um all right, on the JR poll, we asked you about that today. The question was, did you lose power? During this ice event that we are still in the middle of, uh, 59% said no, 41% said yes. Lost power at some point. I hope you're getting it back. The, um, the basketball analyst, the college basketball analyst, Billy Packard, died some days ago. We, I think, mentioned it briefly when it happened. If you're not a sports fan, you may not know who he is. If you are a sports fan, you undoubtedly know the name Billy Packer. Billy Packer was um, a college basketball player and coach, but became a TV analyst and was a TV analyst for most of his life. He called 34 Final Fours uh, for NBC and CBS. He was on the air for every Final Four between 1975 and 2008. His voice became synonymous with college basketball. People have been saying a lot of nice things about him, But I wanted to tell you a quick story that I think is interesting, given what's going on right now. He was a controversial guy. He spoke his mind. He was blunt. He was unfiltered. You could be that way. One time in the 90s, he was talking about Allen Iverson when Allen Iverson was a guard for Georgetown. And he was actually paying him a compliment. And he said that Allen Iverson was a tough monkey. And that was just Billy Packer's unvarnished way of saying that Iverson was, and we remember him this way in the NBA, too, a scrappy player. People said it was racist. There was demands that he be taken off the air. And then John Thompson, the great Georgetown head coach, Iverson's coach, and John Thompson, one of the most revered figures in sports, said that he was asked about it, and he said Billy Packer doesn't have to explain that he is not a racist to anyone because anyone who knows him knows that he is not. Period. Period. He knew the truth. He said the truth. Billy Packer's career went on, as did John Thompson's, as did... Alan Iverson. Tell me that what we're doing now with race is better than that. Just just try, right? Just try. Anyway, I'll see you back here tomorrow at 4 Live or anytime, ktsa.com or as a podcast.